Okay, let's look at our scripture. Uh, we have been preaching through First Thessalonians, uh, the book of First Thessalonians, but we are actually going to take a little bit of a hiatus just for this week, and I'm going to preach on a psalm, Psalm 63. I've been very challenged by this psalm and have titled this sermon, True Satisfaction. So let's hear God's word from Psalm 63. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. This is God's word. Every now and then, a person lucks out and makes a decision, a brilliant decision that will affect their life forever and ever. This was my decision to marry my wife, Leellen Bristol Rodriguez, and marry into the Bristol family. I love my wife and I love her family. And there's one particular thing that I love about uh, uh, Lee Ellen's family, and that is that they love to eat. Many of their traditions center around eating, whether it's holidays or so forth. I didn't really grow up in a big cooking family, so food wasn't really central uh, to life. Uh, but uh, in the Bristol family, uh, it is. Uh, and so I love it uh, when I, I go to vacation with them. In fact, I'm going to be going soon, and we vacation down in Baldhead Island with her family. And uh, food is a central uh, part of that. It was when I met Lee Ellen that I discovered what feasting really was, because these people can cook. Lee Ellen's uh, grandmother is named Nell Rose Mays. Can you get more Southern than Nell Rose Mays? I don't think so. And of course, Lee Ellen's mom, Kay Ellen, and then Lee Ellen. These are good Southern names with good Southern cooking. Now, I'm talking a lot about feasting, and perhaps your mouth is uh, starting to water. But I want to talk about a little bit of a different type of feasting today. I want to talk about a feasting of the soul. See, I don't know if you realize this or not, but the human being has two appetites. An appetite for the body and an appetite for the soul. It's relatively easy to find satisfaction for the body in terms of feasting. You go to a nice restaurant, you put down your money, you, you eat a great meal and you're satisfied. But it's much harder to find satisfaction for the soul. In fact, what we find uh, more often is famine than feast. But in this psalm, David, who wrote it, claims to be satisfied by God. His life is in shambles and falling down 
all around him. And yet David says these words that because your steadfast love is better than life and my soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. He had claims that he's been satisfied by God even in the midst of dryness and despair. What would you and I give to find the source for satisfaction of our soul? To find contentment throughout our days regardless of whether our stock is up or our stock is down. David teaches us a powerful truth that we can take to the bank. That the amount of hunger that you bring to God is the amount of satisfaction that God will bring to you. I'll say it again. The amount of hunger that you choose to bring to God is directly proportional to the amount of satisfaction that God will bring to you. For our God is a God who satisfies. David teaches us three specific things in what God provides in this feast for us if we seek Him. First is God provides a feast for the hungry. Second, God provides a feast that satisfies the soul. And finally, God provides a feast that glorifies. A feast for the hungry, a feast that satisfies, and a feast that glorifies. Well, let's dig in with point number one, a feast for the hungry. A little background on this passage. David is penning this psalm in the desert of Judah. David has been betrayed by his son Absalom. Although he was the king of Israel, there has been a coup d'etat in the kingdom and David has been forced to flee. He has fleed with the members, some members of his family, a skeleton staff, maybe a couple of possessions, and he is on the run in the desert. He has been chased in the desert. And his, the one who is chasing him is his oldest son, Absalom. Absalom has taken his kingdom. He's taken his wife. He has taken his army. And right now he is seeking to destroy him. In fact, there are 10,000 men that are encircling David, trying to find him in the desert in order to kill him. And his son is leading the charge. Now, I have three sons. And I can't imagine what the heart of a father would feel like if one of uh, your sons was seeking to take your very life that hated you that much. Please don't do that. I'm pointing at one of my sons. <laughs> so he's desperate. Maybe this is the last thing that he's ever going to write in his life. And what is it that he writes in his time of need? Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. David's life is crashing all around him. And yet amazingly, David is not praying or asking for rescue from his circumstances. He's not asking for restitution to his kingdom. He's not even asking for restoration to his son. Rather, he's asking for the living God to come to him. Listen to the words that he's using as he craves God. My soul, earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. 
My body, it longs for you. These are powerful words that David is saying. They're words of addiction. If I went into an alcohol or a drug rehab center, these are the kinds of words that I would hear in small group. And yet David is uttering them to God. David is an addict and has an immense hunger, but his hunger is for God. What he's basically saying to God is this, I will die, not because of these 10,000 people who are around me, but rather if I don't have you. Now here's the truth, that all mankind is hungry. We all have an immense hunger deep within our soul. This condition is not endemic only to David, it's also to us. It was the famous 17th century philosopher and mathematician Blaise Pascal that said this, All men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. This is the motive of every action of every man, even of those who hang themselves. It was the uh, uh, 20th century poet philosopher from New Jersey, Bruce Springsteen, who put it even more succinctly. Everybody's got a hungry heart. The question is not if we have hunger in our heart, but where do we go to get it satisfied? And David knows that the answer is not here. He says, my soul thirsts for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. In other words, in this land that we live in called planet Earth, nothing will do that will truly satisfy the soul. David is saying, I've searched and I can't find it. And now everything has been taken away. You know, in a way that is a blessing if everything in your life is taken away from you. Because you get to find out then that whatever you base your life on, whether it truly satisfies you or not. I've heard it said that you should never worship a God who cannot satisfy you in a jail cell. And David is saying that I do have a God, even when everything else is taken away, that can satisfy me. You know, we all carry a menu in our heart of what we think is what we need to satisfy our soul. And in fact, with much expense, I have discovered the menu of the heart. It may look like an Aldo's menu, but it isn't. It's a menu of the soul, okay? And we can go without physical food, but we must have food for the soul. And there are a variety of selections that we place uh, our confidence, our hope for our soul that it will be satisfied on. And I've managed to discover a couple of them. These are some specials on the menu, if you will. Here's one. This is called Security Sirloin. A generous pilaf of financial assets with a four-ounce topping of the choicest family and friend relationships. It's braised with a paid-off mortgage, complemented with a heaping portion of good health. What a delicious treat for the soul. Ah, oh, here's another. Reputation ratatouille. This specialty dish begins with a roasted ensemble of club memberships, board positions, and job promotions. It's laid upon a pasta bed of the right crowd, the right neighborhood, and the right kids 
with a side salad dressed with looking the part. And finally, to top off this menu of the soul, the possessions pastry. Our pastry chefs take such care to stuff this delicacy with the richest of ingredients, the dream house, the German imported SUV, the finest wardrobe, the Caribbean vacation, with just a drizzling of college tuition. These are the meals that are served up to the world that tell us that if we take of them deeply and make them first on our list, our God, so to speak, that they will satisfy our soul. Now hear me, I'm not saying that the things on this menu are bad in themselves. But they're not meant to, and they can never satisfy the deep longings of our soul. David is saying the problem is not what's on this menu. He's saying the problem is you're looking at the wrong menu. That rather it's the Bible that you should be going to. The living words of God. David has ordered from this menu before. He's tasted of everything. And yet in his hour of need, his deepest hunger, this simply won't do. He must have God instead. So where is God on your menu? Where is he on your list? Where do you go first when you need satisfaction for your soul? That you know without this that I will go hungry. See, when we follow the trail of our time, when we follow the trail of our affection, our energy, our money, and our loyalty, we will discover what our true hunger is. It was Tim Keller that gave a hint, if you want to know what is the idol of your soul, what you put your hopes in. It's not what you dream about. It's rather what you have nightmares about. It's what you wake up and go, I dreamt that I did not have this. And not having this, my entire world fell apart. That's what's got a grip on your soul. So what about God, I ask again? Where is he on the menu? You might say, Carlos, he is on the menu. But it's important to have a balanced diet, right? I have all of my various dishes, and I have God too. He's right over here. But you need to know, my friends, that the God of the universe will not share his glory with anything else. He will only sit alone on his throne. And David is showing us that a balanced diet is no diet at all. Because it's only the hungry for God that get to feast on him. It's only those like David that said, earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. That will be satisfied with having the living God. David teaches us this important truth, that the amount of hunger that you bring to God is the amount of himself that God will bring to you. Well, this brings me to my second point. It's a feast not only for the hungry, but it's a feast that satisfies. David says in verse 5, My soul will be satisfied as with the richest of foods. It doesn't say my soul should be satisfied. 
or my soul might be satisfied, but my soul will be satisfied. David comes with a huge hunger, confident that God serves up a feast. And he gives this analogy to understand how his soul will be satisfied. My soul will be satisfied as with the richest of foods. God will meet my deepest heart needs is what David is saying. I don't know if you've felt this in the body before, where there was a feast laid out before you, maybe it was a Christmas dinner and you came and there was this unbelievable uh, spread before you and you ate and you enjoyed and you imbibed and you pushed back from the table when it was all said and done, satisfied in your body with a great meal. David is saying, that's how my soul will be as I come to God looking for my hunger to be satisfied, that it will be satisfied, my soul, as with the richest of foods. Now, I want to interview David, the king, and I want to ask him the question, how can you say that, David? Your life is absolutely ruined. Your son is trying to kill you. You've lost your kingdom. You've lost your army. You've lost your reputation, all your possessions. How can you be so sure? And David answers in verse 3, because your love, O oh God, is better than life. Well, David, you can't mean that. I mean, you had a fantastic life. You were the king of a country. Millions of people were subject to you and worshipped you. Is it better than that? David says he's better than that. But David, you were the great warrior who killed the lion and the bear. You were the one that stood up against Goliath when 40,000 men quaked in their boots. You were the one who would come back from your uh, exploits and crowds would sing, Saul has killed his thousands and David has killed his tens of thousands. And you're saying that God is better than that? Yes, he is. But David, you had access to almost anything you wanted. All of the pleasures of the earth could be yours. And it's better than that? Yes, it's better than that. Finally, I would ask David, but better than life itself? I mean, what's the point of God's love if you're dead? And David would say that God's love, God himself is better than love because his love is stronger than death. The word here is actually steadfast love. And the word steadfast isn't a true translation. The word is actually hesed in Hebrew, which means covenant love. It's because your covenant love is better than life, my lips will praise you. What does that mean, covenant love? Well, I remember when I fell in love with my wife, Lee Ellen. Uh, we were young, and it was in the early years of college, and throughout college, our love grew stronger and stronger. But the reality is there was a point that our love hit a ceiling. See, it was strong, but at any point, I could walk away from that love. But our love took on a whole new level when I recognized and realized and made the decision that she was going to be the one I was going to be committed to for the rest of my life, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, 
in sickness and in health. And then my love became a committed love. It became a covenant love. As her and I stood before a crowd and before God and said, this is till death do us part. But even there doesn't show truly the covenant love of God. Because our covenant can still be broken, can't it? Additionally, it's a mutual covenant in which both of us made that decision. But God enters into a covenant with his people of free will, of his own accord, of his own decision, that I will be faithful to you no matter what, beyond the grave. That's why it's called a covenant. The closest word is kind of a testament, right? Like a last will and testament. This is the final word, if you will. God has made a testament to David. And David is saying, the reason I'm satisfied is because God is for me, regardless of my circumstances. To David, God's chesed love means everything because if he has God, he doesn't need anything else. There's a book I would recommend to you by Dr. Richard Selzer. It's called Mortal Lessons where we see in small part a picture of this covenant love shown between a man and a woman. Dr. Seltzer tells of standing by the bed of a young woman. She is in recovery regaining her consciousness, following an operation to remove a tumor in her cheek. Seltzer writes, I stand by the bed where a young woman lies, her face post-operative, her mouth twisted in palsy, somewhat clownish. A tiny twig of the facial nerve, the one to the muscles of her mouth, had been severed. She will be this way from now on. I had followed with religious fervor the curve of her flesh. Nevertheless, to remove the tumor in her cheek, I had to cut the little nerve. Her young husband is in the room. He stands on the opposite side of the bed and together they seem to dwell in the evening lamplight, isolated from me. The moment is a private one. Who are they, I ask myself? He and this wry mouth I have made, who ga gaze at each other so generously, so lovingly. The young woman speaks, will my mouth always be like this? She asks. Yes, I say it will. It is because the nerve was cut. She nods and is silent. But the young man smiles. I like it, he says. It's kind of cute. All at once I know who he is. I understand and I lower my gaze. One is not bold in an encounter with a God moment. Unmindful, he bends to kiss her crooked mouth. And I am so close I can see how he twists his own lips to accommodate to hers, to show her that their kiss still works. For David, God is for him. Who can be against him? And it's the same for us if you are a follower of Jesus Christ. He makes a covenant of grace with us, a marriage contract written in his blood. He has betrothed us to himself. For God demonstrates his own love for you and me. For when Christ, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 
The truth, if we're honest about ourselves, is that we are the broken bride. Our face is palsied by our sin. But Jesus contorted his body to show that he would not abandon us. His back whipped and lashed. His head crowned with thorns. His body twisted on a cross. His holiness to our sin. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is this chesed love for? Anyone that calls on the name of the Lord. Like David, who says, I want you above all. Not only be my God, be my satisfaction. Be my hope. Whatever it is that you have ordered off the menu of the soul, is it capable of providing you with this never-ended Hesed love? I remember the first car I got that was a relatively new car. It was a Hyundai. This was back in the day when Hyundai did not make the cars that they did now. It was white, it was beautiful, and it had low miles. I loved that Hyundai. The only problem is it didn't love me back. At 60,000 miles, it was literally like the entire car just fell apart right there. Got to the point that I had to jump the car every single time to get it to run. I loved the car, but it didn't love me back. We give ourselves to so many things that we love that never love us back. Maybe it's that security menu, right? You're building the financial fortress. House is paid, the retirement's done, the college is paid. Nothing can touch you. So why are you so anxious? We probably have more than we've ever had and we're more anxious than we ever have been before. When you put your trust on something like that, it's not going to get up on a cross and die for you. Because it's not alive. It's just a thing. But Jesus got up on a cross and died for his people. And he demonstrated his power by rising from the grave. His power over nature. And that's why David says, I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and glory. See, it's personal between God and us. It's a mystery in a way that we don't understand how we can be in relationship with the living God of the universe. David has tasted and seen. Have you? You will seek me and find me, God says, when you seek me with all of your heart. What have you decided to feast on the satisfying, never-ending love of God? What would your life look like? Think there would be less searching, 
more satisfaction, less taking, more giving, less anxiety, more peace. Would you have less troubles in this world? Probably not. I don't know. But that's the point, isn't it? True peace is when you can have it no matter what. When everything is falling around you, that you can say, my soul is satisfied. Because the amount of hunger that you bring to God is the amount of himself that he brings to you. This brings me to my final point. It's the feast that glorifies. I have a favorite dish. I look forward to it. And now I can never have it again because I'm gluten intolerant and dairy intolerant and blah, blah intolerant. And so it is only in the dim recesses of my mind as I, as I cradle it in my heart. It's called pineapple cheese casserole. I have the recipe right here. Oh, it's good. Two cans of pineapple, chunked and drained. Three quarters cups all-purpose flour. Oh, one half cup of sugar. Stop it, keep going. Two cups shredded cheddar cheese. The piece de resistance, one tube of Ritz crackers. One and a half sticks of margarine. You sort of take all this stuff and goulash it up and you throw it in cook it for 350 and bring it out and oh the sweetness of kings when you eat it something starts to happen as i smell it in the oven i start to bring forth praise my mouth overflows with praise and i start exclaiming to everyone how fantastic it is how sweet and wonderful as i eat have you ever noticed that true satisfaction spontaneously flows over into praise. A song that you really love comes on the radio and you involuntarily blurt out, oh, I love this song. Or you're walking along in a park and it's a beautiful fall day and the leaves are changing and the sky is blue and without thinking you stop and say, this day is magnificent. Look at these trees. See, that's what's happening with David here. Notice how his satisfaction is flowing over into praise. Verse 3, because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. My soul will be satisfied as with the riches of foods. Verse 5, with singing lips, my mouth will praise you. Because you are my help, verse 7, I sing in the shadow of your wings. See, we were made to praise God. But we need power for praise. And out of the overflow, David is showing that the mouth speaks. The power for authentic praise of the heart overflows with satisfaction in God. See, I think we have in our lives this false dichotomy about God. We know that God is great. We know that he should be glorified and praised because he is God. And on the other side, we have this heart need and heart desire and hunger, and we feel like we have to give up on one, either praise God or go find satisfaction in God, but the reality is they're one and the same. God is most glorified 
when our hearts are most satisfied in Him. For God is not interested in hollow praise. He's interested in the satisfied heart. See, we actually have a duty to be satisfied in God. It's the dangerous duty of delighting ourselves in God. When you think about it, what can we really bring to God? Our works, the things that we do, they're laughable in themselves, I'm sure. Maybe praise to God. Well, I'm sure there are whole classes of angels in heaven that can sing better and more beautiful than us. Is it our wisdom that we can bring to God? No, I think the one thing that we can bring to God that honors Him the most is our hunger, our naked desire that speaks to God like David says, I cannot be satisfied with anything else if it's not you. Take me now if you don't give me yourself. For God is most glorified when we are most satisfied in Him. So we must delight ourselves in God for His sake and finally for man's sake. The reality is this is a dry and weary world. And people keep ordering from this menu for the soul and they keep on coming up empty with famine rather than feast. People are hoping to catch a glimpse of what a satisfied heart looks like. Because there's something contagious when you run across a person whose praise is true and honest and whose heart is full of the love of God. Everybody's looking for the feast. They just don't know his name. And that's all Christianity is, isn't it? It's just one beggar saying to another, I know where all the bread is. What would it look like at your work if you committed to being satisfied in Christ alone? How would it affect the people around you as they saw your life? What would it look like at your school? What would it look like at your house? See, there's only one way to do it. To commit to feast on His covenant love. To show up early in the morning to seek the Lord. But to come with a knife and a fork. God, feed me. You ever spend time in prayer with a knife and a fork? Just saying, God, feed me. We eat three meals a day, breakfast, lunch, and dinner for our bodies. Should we not also for our souls to take time throughout the day to get in a quiet room, to read some scripture, and to cry out to God, meet my needs and fill my heart with your covenant love. We must learn his word and wring everything out of it. And sometimes we also need help feeding each other. It's why you come to church on Sunday, isn't it? You're looking for the bread. It's why we go to things like beach days. So we can maybe encourage one another, not just talking about the weather, but how God has been good to us. This is a group meal, not just an individual meal.
Jesus says, come to me, all you are weary, and I will give you rest. He's saying, I will give you peace and satisfaction. Well, I want to close with this thought because I've gone long. I want you to take a moment and your mind fast forward to the end of your life. When all the battles have been fought, all the hills have been conquered, and your life is drawing to a close, much like David's might be this night. When you pick up a pen and a piece of paper, what is the psalm that you're going to write? What words will accurately describe that which your heart treasures? Will you be able to say, like David, O God, you are my God. Earnestly I sought you. My soul had thirsted for you. My flesh had fainted for you. And your steadfast love has proven time and time again to be better than life. Because when we follow the trail of our time, our affection, our energy, our money, and our loyalty, we will discover what is our true hunger. In the end, it is the choices we make, not our words that reveal who we are. This psalm of your life is yours to write and yours alone. For the amount of hunger that we bring to God is the amount of himself that God brings to you and to me. That amount is up to you. Let's pray. Oh, Father, what a gold mine. The truth that you are all that we need. That you and Jesus Christ have the power to bring satisfaction to our soul. Oh God, we chase after so many other things. Counterfeits that look shiny but never deliver. I pray that we would leave this place with a renewed desire and hunger to seek you. Meet us wherever we're at. Satisfy us in the morning with your unfailing love that we may sing for joy and be glad all of our days. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.